Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, throwing water on the panic around COVID-19's alleged short-lived immunity. The latest wellness trend, hugging cows. T-shirts that are made out of milk. And are you guilty of revenge bedtime procrastination? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Starting today with a bit of a return to our roots as a show, I want to talk about immunity to COVID-19. There was a study put out by King's College in London a few weeks ago which found that COVID-19 antibodies in people who had been infected largely disappeared after two months. The headlines about COVID-19 immunity being temporary were all over the place, with more than a few implying that this means we'll never have a truly effective vaccine and never truly defeat the coronavirus. It's all a bit terrifying, so I wanted to share some insight from Derek Thompson over at The Atlantic, who spoke with a number of experts to get a deeper understanding of the study and inject some good news into all of the headline fear-mongering. Now, I'm not going to tell you that the study was totally wrong and that we're all going to be completely fine. Nothing about COVID-19 is completely good news. But as Shane Crotty, a virologist at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology, told The Atlantic, actually looking at the data, I feel okay about it. Quoting further from The Atlantic, Acquired immunity is cellular memory. When our bodies fight off an infection, we want our immune systems to remember how to defeat it again, like a person who, after solving a big jigsaw puzzle, recognizes and remembers how to set the pieces the next time. The whole point of vaccination is to teach the immune system those same puzzle-solving lessons without exposing it to the full virus. This is why the KCL study initially seemed so dreadful. It found that the number of certain active antibodies, called neutralizing antibodies, declined significantly between tests, especially in patients with mild or no symptoms. Antibody levels are one proxy for the immune system's memory. If they plunge quickly, that might mean that our immune system can't remember how to solve COVID-19 for more than a few months at a time, dooming us to start from square one with each new exposure." End quote. Now, while those findings from the King's College study are definitely concerning, there are three main reasons to be skeptical about the study and therefore hopeful for our futures. First, the study only looked at one part of our immune system, our vast, mysterious immune system, about which there remain many unknowns. Quoting again, When a new pathogen enters the body, our adaptive immune system calls up a team of B cells, which produce antibodies and T cells. To oversimplify a bit, the B-cells antibodies intercept and bind to invading molecules, and the killer T-cells seek and destroy infected cells. Evaluating an immune response without accounting for T-cells is like inventorying a national air force but leaving out the bomber jets. And in the case of COVID-19, those bomber jets could make the biggest difference. A growing collection of evidence suggests that T-cells provide the strongest and longest-lasting immunity to COVID-19. But this study didn't measure them at all. End quote. And further, a study out of Francis Strasberg University Hospital found that patients recovering from COVID-19 had strong T-cell responses, despite not having any detectable antibodies. Now, second, a decline in antibodies isn't that unusual. Shane Crotty, the virologist from the La Jolla Institute for Immunology, said, quote, It's not unusual to have fading antibody response after several months. The drop-off isn't that surprising. 
When you look at something like the smallpox vaccine, you see the antibody response is down about 75% after six months. But that's a vaccine that works for decades. We need a study like this to look at COVID patients six months after infection to really know what we're dealing with, end quote. And third, and finally, it's possible that even these low levels of antibodies could trigger a larger immune response in the future, like if the individual is exposed to SARS-CoV-2 again. This goes back to the immunological memory. It's like the memory isn't that strong when it's not confronted, but when the trigger of the virus returns, so does the memory. Even beyond the critiques of this one study that caused so much panic in the news, there remain many other reasons to be hopeful. Vaccine research continues to steamroll along at an unprecedented pace, several studies on monkeys have shown strong, long-lasting immune response, and a new study shows that patients who recovered from SARS in East Asia indeed have long-lasting T-cell immunity. Plus, as journalist Noah Smith shared on Twitter, pointing to research from immunologist Professor Akiko Iwasaki, this news about antibodies doesn't necessarily mean the vaccine would be ineffective, because, quoting Iwasaki, vaccines can elicit stronger immune response than natural infections. Thus, COVID-19 vaccines can and should induce more robust and durable protection than natural infection, end quote. As Noah Smith sums it all up, quote, one, antibodies aren't the only thing that can give you immunity. Two, your body can probably remember how to make new antibodies. And three, vaccines can potentially give you longer lasting immunity than you'd get from actually getting COVID, end quote. You may have heard of goat yoga. Well, get ready for the latest wellness trend, cow-hugging. Dutch farm Kasanya Hova started offering cow-hugging 14 years ago, after their foster daughter discovered how great and therapeutic the activity is. Now, it's a regular part of the farm's offerings to visitors and has grown into a worldwide trend. I don't know if Kasanya Hova was necessarily the first ones to do it, but they are one of the longest-running and seemingly most passionate practitioners. Hugging in general, whether bovine-related or just another human, is hugely therapeutic because, according to the BBC, it stimulates touch receptors under our skin and can both lower anxiety hormones and reduce stress levels. And because cows have warmer bodies and a lower heart rate than humans, hugging or even just resting against them is a comforting experience, quote, similar to hugging against a soft, hot water bottle. The folks at Kasanya Hova are dedicated to making sure both humans and cows have a positive experience, following the lead of all involved to make sure it's a rewarding time. And they note that not all cows are good candidates for hugging. Good hugging cows are born, not trained. It's about their temperaments, like if they like hugging or not, kind of like humans. The farmers don't train or force them to be hugging cows. They say that a good hugging cow is usually older and a bit more patient. That said, you can usually see whether a cow will enjoy hugging from the time it's a calf. But sometimes even cows who like hugs can be grumpy and not want to hug people that day. But fortunately, cows usually advocate for themselves. When they're enjoying it, they'll stay still and even close their eyes, showing that they're relaxed. But when they don't want to participate anymore, they stand up and walk away. Grumpier anti-hugging cows, though, have been known to chase a wannabe hugger out of the field. The farmers say it's very important not to force the cows to hug people when they don't want to, and I suppose that is both in terms of having compassion for the cow and for your own safety. The owners of Castanyahova say they even have a cow who gets very jealous when she's not the one being hugged. 
Now, in addition to the therapeutic benefits of this new trend, farms around the world are using it as a way to bring visitors out to their farms and get people interested in the countryside. It might be a bit strange, but it does sound like the cows at least are way more into this than most baby goats are in goat yoga. And if it's supporting farmers, then I'm all about it. I guess today's episode is kind of brought to you by the Milk Lobby, because here is another dairy-related story about a startup making t-shirts out of milk. Yep, sustainable fashion company Taro uses discarded milk that would have otherwise gone to waste and turns it into fabric to create an eco-friendly alternative to fast fashion. Quoting Business Insider, Mitero begins the milk shirt-making process by sourcing excess milk from partnering dairy farms. From there, the milk is fermented and skimmed to remove the fat in the milk. The milk is then dewatered, forming a powdery substance. The milk powder is then dissolved once again to purify it and remove unwanted proteins, leaving resulting fibers that are stretched and spun into yarn. To make a shirt out of the processed milk threads alone would make the shirt largely uncomfortable, CEO and founder Robert Luo said. So it is combined with micromodal, an organic material made of beechwood, similar to cotton, but with more sustainable manufacturing. Each shirt is made up of about 15 to 20 percent milk, Luo said. According to the Mitero website, about five shirts equate one glass of milk, end quote. So even if the shirts aren't made completely from milk, the process uses 60% less water than it takes to make an organic cotton t-shirt, and by using milk, Mitero is helping the environment by finding a use for something that would otherwise go to waste. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 17% of waste in landfills and incinerators comes from dairy products. 17%. Robert Luo says that 128 million tons of milk go to waste every year globally. So if you want to help reduce some of that milk waste, you can get a milk-made t-shirt from Mitero. They sell it in various styles of shirts, as well as pairs of boxer briefs. And they also have a travel bag made out of cork and ocean plastics. Plus, Mitero says that they plant 15 trees for every purchase, and looks like they're running a 35% off sale to celebrate National Ice Cream Month this month. 3D bioprinted meat that barely needs involvement from animals, clothing made from milk... The future is looking pretty sustainable. And real weird. Ending today with tips on how to fix something that you may be doing without quite realizing, and certainly without knowing that there's a term for it. I'm talking about revenge bedtime procrastination. Shared on Twitter recently by journalist and editor Daphne K. Lee, who seems to have heard about it from a friend in Taipei, it's described by Lee as, quote, a phenomenon in which people who don't have much control over their daytime life refuse to sleep early in order to regain some sense of freedom during late night hours, end quote. So maybe you've spent all day working a shift, not being able to access your phone or take more than a quick break to yourself. Maybe you've spent all day chasing your kids around in between conference calls. By the time you've done everything and it's time for bed, you could go to sleep and catch up on some much-needed Zs, but instead, you turn on Netflix, you doom-scroll through social media for a while, or do whatever to stay up for a few hours, finally, for the first time that day, doing something that feels like yours, fully your own decision. Particularly during this global crisis, Lifehacker notes that many of us may be seeking to regain some control in our lives, however we can. 
It may not seem like much, but squeezing in one last activity before bed, no matter how passive the activity may be, is one way that we're taking control over what we can and can't do in our life. Dr. Amy Deramis, a clinical psychologist, says, quote, When everything you do is about someone else's needs, it might sometimes feel worth it to sacrifice some sleep, end quote. But of course, revenge bedtime procrastination isn't the best option all the time. Most adults don't get nearly as much sleep as we actually need. So how can we take steps to at least limit our nighttime indulgences? Lifehacker recommends trying to find time for yourself throughout the day, even if it has to be in a couple of 10-minute breaks as opposed to an hour-plus-long chunk. Dr. Deramis recommends doing some of the things you might do during revenge bedtime procrastination, like watching a TV show or reading a book. Do those during your lunch break. Or designate one night a week to stay up late doing whatever you want on a night when you know you can sleep in a little the next day. Or, Lifehacker says, even if you really can't carve out any time for yourself during the day, which is a reality for many people who are caregivers and or have other demanding jobs, just acknowledging that it's a real phenomenon and that it's a thing you do can help. That awareness might push you to set some boundaries and conk out a little earlier. I gotta say, I'm super guilty of this, and even just knowing there's a reason why I've been doing it is already changing how I think about it. There's definitely something to it. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you tomorrow.